economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I am Dr. Russ McCullough of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University and also hold the Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. I have my two colleagues along with me and we have a special guest today as well. So we have Dr. Peter Jacobson, who is our Gortney Institute Professor of Economic Education and Research and our Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics, Dr. Justin Clark. So and Justin, why don't you go ahead and give us an introduction with these awesome topics we're going to get into. Oh, I like to call it outer space, but that's probably a little misleading. And there, But there is some talk about planets in this. And, and I might say, listeners, we did a previous podcast. We'll try to put in the show notes which one it was on orbit. And I think this was about a year ago, wasn't it, Justin, or so? So uh, today we have an awesome guest. And Justin, take it away. Yeah, so today we have as our guest uh, Galen Wolf Pauly, who is the co founder and current CEO of Tlon. And Tlon is the company that primarily develops Urbit, which, as listeners know, is a project that I have been geeking out on for uh, <laughs> a really long time. And as listeners also know, I have kind of had some difficulty in the past trying to explain why I like Urbit so much and, and what it is. So I'm really glad that we have Galen here to kind of, you know, set me straight and set all of us straight about what Urbit is and why it's so awesome. So Galen, do you want to tell us a little bit sure, about yeah. the project? Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'll do my best to give a straightforward explanation of what Urbit is. I started to think that we're much better at building stuff than we are at explaining it. And we started to even just sort of deprioritize that and just focus on making this thing work, but I'll, I'll do what I can. So Urbit is in just you know simple, straightforward material terms, Urbit is a piece of software that runs on top of any anything that basically looks like a Unix machine with an internet connection, which may sound crazy, but basically any cloud server, your laptop, your phone. And the idea is basically that we want to layer over existing internet infrastructure with a new network where individuals can run their own computer instead of connecting to services that serve lots of people. Everybody runs their own node that stores their data, runs their applications, and lets them you know, connect freely with other people. So it's basically so Zuckerberg doesn't have everything under his control. <laughs> yeah. Is that part of the motivation here? Yeah, it's not, never was specifically directed at, <laughs> at Zuck or anyone who's in power now. I think it comes out of this, like, you know, I grew up using green and dark green screened PCs, right? And the PC is this really magical thing. It's this open-ended tool. You can do whatever you want with it. And the PC was also sort of never designed to have a network connection natively and not in the way that we use uh, the internet today, right? We figured out how to wire them all together, but now you know, my phone, my laptop pretty much all depends on compute or, or just, you know, services that are elsewhere and are managed by other people. And that's just sort of an accident. And we've, you know, people like Zuckerberg, I mean, all of the, you know, I mean, it's not Zuckerberg, people, <laughs> so it's a lot of, uh, it's not an individual effort. You have to uh, forgive me. I, I'll throw a bunch of them under the book, but Facebook, Google, all of the Amazon having all of our info and us just willy-nilly uh, scrolling down to the bottom of a four-page small print document and saying, I agree. 
Yeah. Oh, it's, I mean, it's not a great situation, but I think it's mostly an accident, I guess, is sort of my, my take. Yeah, uh, and I think the biggest part of that accident is just that these are people trying to, you know, extract a lot of value from basically an old technical paradigm, which is like take an operating system from the 70s and figure out how to get a lot of people to use it, right? So run a server that can accommodate millions of people to come and connect to it all at once. It's not that different from everybody used to go to the computer center and share a mainframe. And then everybody, but everyone got PCs, right? So Urbit's like that take. It's like, look, it's actually really restrictive to share a mainframe in the form of Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Google, whatever. What you want is for every people to compute freely, but what you need is a new technology in order to do that. And so Urbit really is that technology and probably don't want to get too into it technically, but yeah, at the end of the day, you can think of it like, you can communicate with people without ever seeing an ad, without ever compromising your privacy and being in charge of basically like, what are the modes that you communicate with people? Meaning like when we bring a group together, do we chat and share, you know, share files and share documents or do we, you know, share tasks and share data and share, you know, individual applications to work on stuff or whatever. Right now that's all scattered across services. And that as a user experience is actually just sort of weird. Like this was handled in the PC era, right? Where I sat down at my desktop, I installed some applications and I got to work on, you know, kind of whatever I wanted to work on. But when we do networked computing, when we connect with other people, that user experience in my view, like I think if you step, I think people are sort of stuck in thinking this is the only way that we can compute. But if you step out of that and you look at it, at least for me, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of a design background. You look at it as a designer, you're just like, this is incredibly stupid, but it's incredibly hard to change. So yeah. yeah. That's been working on this for a long time. I can't say I'm not saying this is like low hanging fruit, but but yeah. Anyway, I don't know. Hopefully that gives it paints somewhat of a picture. Galen, I have a question that might help our listeners with what it looks like concretely, if you don't mind. I was sure. I was curious. One thing that I I think might help is for the listeners at home. What would happen? What does it look like when you turn on your computer in a world where we use Urbit? Do you still have your desktop with your icons and your you know, auto-generated Windows backgrounds. What, what does that look like? Yeah, so that's a good question. So it probably looks a little bit like what it's like to run a Chromebook. So ideally in a future that's not too, too far away, you boot a device that is, you know, any commodity device. It's probably not that different than an Android phone or, or, a, um, or a Windows piece, you know, laptop that basically has almost nothing uh, on it locally. And it connects to, it, you, it runs Urbit locally to basically connect to a permanent Urbit node that you have running in the cloud somewhere. From an interface standpoint, uh, I'm not a huge fan of the sort of desktop spatial interface. I think that's was used basically to teach people from the 70s how to think about uh, computers because it, it looks like a, a physical desktop. So it looks a lot more like, I mean, I think it looks different than that. I don't know if I can really describe it in a podcast, but I think it looks like, but effectively you log into one place where, you know, all of your documents, all of your social connections, all of the things that you're doing. So if you think of it as take all the productivity software you use, Google Docs, Slack, Asana, GitHub, whatever it might be, and bring that together into a single unified interface that is, you know, easily navigable that you can sort of, uh, you know, casually customize. The closest thing that have gotten to this, I mean, so WeChat is the thing that we always talk about as being the closest to this. So I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with WeChat, but this is sort of the dominant social platform in China. And in China, you can think of it as Facebook on, in, you know, that has sort of eaten everything. So in China, if I want to go out to 
if I want to go out to eat, I book a reservation through WeChat. I invite my friends to come. I pay the bill on WeChat. I do basically, you know, you can do almost everything from a single interface. So anyway, I think the future we imagine is basically like integrate all of these services into a single user experience that people, yeah, basically boot into from whatever it is that they're using. I don't know if that's too hard to imagine. Probably yeah, sounds a little. The thing is like how that's different than what we're doing now that this interface that has everything in one is it because it's emanating from your individual property outwards rather than thinking of going to the server like Facebook or other servers and participating in their structure? Right. Yeah. So definitely today, I mean, I'm looking at you guys through one window and basically everything else I have open on my monitors are browser tabs for the most part. Right. And those browser tabs connect me to services that each of which has their own UI each of which controls my data, decides what to do with it, how long it lives, and decides on the social graph of who I'm connected to and how I connect with them. So I would contend that there are a few important you know, compromises you make there. So the first one's definitely on the interface side. Switching between interfaces is confusing. The second one is on just durability. I don't really know how long my data is gonna last, especially when I'm turning it over to a company that's ad funded. So, cause I don't, I, I'm not paying them. Like, I don't really know, am I gonna be able to get this data back? Am I gonna be able to use it? Am I gonna be able to give it to my grandkids? Um, and then the other one, it has to do with just who you're connected with. So maybe this is a part of your data, but while I'm sharing documents with someone in Google docs, you know, if they lose their password, you know and can't go through Google's recovery process because they have no support team. Well, now we've, we're no longer connected. And if I have no other way of contacting them, I mean, we have sort of permanently lost a, you know some form of connection. And, and when so, you yeah. say data, I just want to keep it simple for our listeners and more importantly for me, like a picture <laughs> that you take uh, on Facebook. So you take a oh, picture yeah. and you put it on Facebook. I think what you're saying is that we don't have you know, any guarantees that what's going to happen to that picture. Is it going to be replicated or sold or back to us? Or if I can take that picture and give it to my kids, there, we don't really have any element of security. Is that um, yeah. other than our full trust in Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook? <laughs> yeah, there are probably two parts to it. So you definitely don't know how your data is being used because you're whatever, in the case of a photo, you're uploading it to someone, you're basically handing it over. And yeah, you didn't read those pages of terms of service, which basically stipulate that you probably don't own the thing, depends on the service, but yeah. you've effectively given it away. But the thing that bothers me, and I think in a maybe a broader, in the broader cultural context is you just don't know how long it's going to last. So it, what's sort of tragic, I think, about the current state of technology is like, most of the stuff's just going to be gone in 10 or 20 years because most of these services just don't look that likely to, to survive. And the energy that we put into basically putting the cultural record online is that's actually comes, I think, from a very good place. Like we want to remember what happened to us, our families, our communities, whatever it might be, but we don't really have good guarantees of it surviving. And what you really want is for it to be able to survive, you know, to not even think about the fact that your, you know, your grandkids and their kids and their kids are going to be able to see what's going on today and improve their, you know, understanding of the world, right? So anyway, that's the thing that bothers I, I sort of have like slowly just stopped using anything centralized because it feels very fragile. And yeah, there's something unsettling about that, I think, which is at the heart of most of the sort of backlash against big tech, I think. It just feels weird to like, you know, hand it over to somebody else, basically. And, and I think people feel like they have to hand it over to get the benefits that they enjoy, yeah. the, the feeds right. oh, and yeah. the, the network. So that's their 
perceived trade-off, not knowing that maybe there's another way is what I think you're trying to rescue the day with, right? <laughs> yeah, that's been, yeah, the, you know, this is less true as Urbit has matured and it's, you know, getting, getting better pretty steadily now, but there is no, yeah, there's no alternative. <laughs> so I used to, uh, I used to have this argument. There's, I think there's a, a while, probably six or seven years ago, where I would make this argument. I could sort of it would make it to anyone who would listen, and then I realized that it was a sort of pointless argument because even if I could convince someone that this is not the right way that technology should work, I w- you know couldn't really tell. Well, they're like, okay, well, what should I do instead? And it's like, I really, you have no good answer. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, Urban is ideally the answer to that. Um, so Galen, I've heard you talk before about calm computing and also about how our current paradigm kind of induces a kind of Stockholm syndrome in yeah. uh, the everyday user. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that. Well, maybe recap Stockholm syndrome for our listeners before Galen tackles that one. A Stockholm syndrome is you know, typically when somebody who is taken hostage develops feelings of affinity for their hostage takers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's from some, I think that it's like there was a hostage situation in Stockholm, right? Oh, yeah, where they ended up staying connected somehow. Anyway, uh, well, in a way, we were just talking about it. It's basically like the fact that the services we use provide us the ability to be connected with other people, which is really satisfying, you know? Being connected with people who are not geographically connected to you is something that's not going away. We obviously want that. And so we've come up with all of this cope and all of these rationalizations about why this, the systems that we have are acceptable, even though they're not acceptable. And I think, yeah, one another way to think about why they're not acceptable is just to look at the ways in which we've encoded, encoded history and built the structures of society, over, like long-term historically. So if you look at the way that, you know, I can pick up a book even a book that was published, you know, literally printed 200 years ago, I could still read it. Like that technology is not owned by anybody. It's not controlled by anybody. And that's why it's, you know, that, that's why it's so important, basically. Like that, that's sort of like what makes it an important cultural fixture. And I think that we, what, the character of most of those, kind, those technologies, and you could talk about services like printing and basically any kind of uh, like painting and drawing, a lot of like technology for building cities, they're pretty much invisible. They disappear to us. We don't think about their existence. And that's, I think, where computing will end up. That, that it's not even, I, I don't, I tend to think of this as something that's just a complete and total inevitability. That basically like networked computing is something that will continue to exist practically forever. It's like, a, it's like an extension of, of human consciousness almost. We want that to be the case. But in order for that to happen and for it to sort of match up with longstanding technology that we use to sort of like encode the cultural record and organize society, it has to look like all these things we already have, which means it has to be almost like uninteresting, has to be invisible, it has to fade into the background. And so I think the future of that is, yeah, it's like you want computing to be calm, almost unnoticeable. It, you know, it shouldn't be filled with ads. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be high engagement. It should be something that's just passively there that works for you that you don't think about very much. Okay. Yeah, that is, you have provided a lot of fuel for uh, some discussion after the second half here. One of the things that came to mind for me that I'll leave as a teaser for the second half is whether uh, one of the dangers you pose is losing data, like that that should be a motivation for us to want to, to have control of that. And whether government intervention would be needed to 
somewhat break up the what the way we do it now does it need to be more of a, a public service announcement or something uh, of government yeah. intervention to to kind of highlight so i'll leave that as a teaser and we'll uh, go into our break here and uh, we'll be back in just a bit please subscribe on your favorite podcast app if you use itunes please consider giving us a five-star review it helps other people find us we'd like to do a mailbag episode so please send your questions to info at the Wharton Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have a new PPE league, which is philosophy, politics, and economics starting up here next year. Kind of an exciting term where we're going to have schools competing. Philosophy component will revolve around the importance of reason and free and honest discourse. The politics component will highlight the historical importance of the rule of law and limited government and the promotion of human flourishing. And the economics component will focus in on the role of freedom and markets in generating prosperity, focusing on the works of economists in the tradition of Adam Smith, Mises, Hayek, and Thomas Sowell. So look forward to that. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like this, contact Peter or Russ or Justin today. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or reoccurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. All right, welcome back here. Continuing on with Galen. And, and since this is our Faith and Economics podcast, I like to just ask our people we're having a discussion with on your faith background and, and maybe how your faith maybe works into what you do or if you see that be an impact or not. That's a good question. So yeah, I've been sort of on for a long time, had a very strict Zen Buddhism practice, which once you take on the responsibilities of <laughs> having a family and running a company, that's uh, very difficult to maintain. So I'd say- I'm Yeah, a, I'm, Christians, I'm, Christians have that same problem sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah. that, that is definitely yeah, universal uh, <laughs> across faiths, I think. <laughs> I guess I will say I'm very glad that I got sort of uh, had that before I, yeah, like when I was sort of had more time on my hands, I guess. So yeah, I think I'm sort of like a bad, a bad or a mediocre Buddhist or something. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it, how, how does it, I mean, I think that what I learned from, from, from sitting in a very disciplined way is how to kind of like keep continuity really in, in the work that we do, uh, in the work that I do, and then being able to sort of project that out to both the company and the community. Irv is a very, long project. I mean, it's like, it's an ambitious project and it will take a long time to come to fruition. And so I feel like that's probably, that's the most immediate thing that comes to mind. I think it just has to do with, yeah, how you approach the work day to day in a way. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but to me, I think of Buddhism, I think of meditation and thinking deeply about things. And this, this Urbit stuff is so out there. I'm yeah. like, you, you, you almost have to have that be part of, part of the process so you can think through these complex, uh, complex issues. That actually might be true. Yeah. I mean, I have a, I always had a sort of practice of sitting and I'm, and I'm very active and spend a lot of time outside. And so definitely in order to think through difficult problems, you need to be able to, yeah, you have to have the discipline to set aside large chunks of time to think through things while you're actually also really busy and trying to get something done on a deadline. So I do think that's probably the main thing that I learned there. Yeah. Oh, good. So, Peter, you were thinking something on architecture in general, or? Well, I I think maybe uh, another way to to ask would be I'm curious. So, we've we've talked a little bit about the UI and, and comp computing, 
uh, and how there will sort of be like this one UI that's integrated properly. Okay, we got to stop there for a second. UI, give that to me again. What does that stand for? User interface. Because if I'm thinking that. So, so, okay. anyway, so, so this is the one way user to, interface. One way to think okay. about UI is like on your desktop, you sure. have a, yeah. a background and icons. And, and you Steve know, Jobs was the first one that kind of came up with the, the mouse that, or I don't know if who we want to give credit to, but using the mouse as part of your user interface. Uh, not sure about the history there, but <laughs> my, so my, my question is, how much control do people have over the UI then, the one UI they experience compared yeah. to, and you could even put that relative to like a world where we have Windows, Facebook, that sort of thing. Yeah, so to fill in the history, since I do love the history of this stuff, the, you know, the sort of dominant desktop UI paradigm that we use is comes out of mostly basically Xerox Park and research that was done in, in the Valley in the 70s. The mouse actually comes from a guy named Doug Engelbart, who is at SRI, I think. Mm. In any event, this was all kind of like latent research where people were just, at this point, right, a computer was not, it was a command line, it was just text. And there wasn't really a concept. It was, it was people were thinking in very open-ended ways about how do we make a computer intelligible to people. And so the desktop as an innovation, I mean, is really literally like, just how do we take the physical desktop of the you know mid-century and make it something that is actually digital? And so if you, I mean, even the desktop that we have today, it's like thinking in documents and files and folders, all of that just comes from trying to use this metaphor of the physical desk, it's, which is totally arbitrary. It's very successful, but it's just, it's something that people just made up, right? What those people made up that's really, I think that they, they did very successfully is that they figured out in a way an answer to the question you're asking which is that they found a really good balance between like flexibility in terms of sort of customization and just good sane defaults right most of us don't really customize our desktop environments it turns out you can customize it a lot if you want to and i think that that's actually that is a very general sort of design principle is i what you really want out of a computer the problem is that if I want to customize Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Signal, whatever it might be, I can't. And there's a lot of casual creativity that can result in really cool and, 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 and amazing stuff uh, that we're just unable to do. I tend to think of this actually in terms of the physical environment, right? It would be weird if we couldn't move the furniture around in our houses. Many people are happy just, you know, I mean, lots of people just want to move into a furnished apartment. That's totally fine. We don't, I mean, yeah, it, it's not like, no one thinks that that is like a default negative, but some people really want to, you know, build their own furniture or build their own homes. And that's also, um, that's how we discover new ways of living in a way, right? So you want the same level of flexibility to exist in the in a computing environment. I'm not sure if that's too vague. I give a more concrete mm -hmm. answer probably too, but I think that's the sort of general design principle. I guess one more thing I'll say is that the ethos of the desktop, right, which has this, like, if you want to customize it, you can go and customize it, but it comes in a pretty sane, you know, with sane defaults out of the box. That ethos, just that sort of thread of thinking just totally got dropped in the mid-90s once we moved to a service-oriented world. So you can't customize AOL. You could sort of customize the early web, but then, like, Google services, so on and so Once you in a, you're in a service-oriented world, you just lose that ability for the user to really do anything. So I tend to think of Urban as trying to sort of pick up the thread where we left off with desktop computing. And there's still a lot that can be done there. Yeah. So one thing came to mind when you said that for me is that, yes, we can't customize 
AOL or these other platforms, but competition allows some degree of customization in a sense, but it might gravitate towards the powerhouses that we have. So what I'm thinking is that a, a new software company comes up and it's really user-friendly and everybody loves it and the technology, it was a, a change and then Facebook swallows it up and, and, and incorporates it somehow. And so we're, the market is signaling that we want something better or innovation isn't completely stifled that somebody comes up with something new and how it ends up getting incorporated is not through the user rearranging their desktop as you explained, but rather a response from profit-minded people to the general public. Does that make sense? I, I, I don't know where yeah. that fits in with and, and it, I don't think they're mutually exclusive either with, with what you're trying to do with Urbit, but. Yeah, I think you can think of the Urbit model as in some ways, well, at a very high level, maybe it's like, yeah, that's a great, that's a great thing. You want that sort of innovation to happen. You want people, we want people to ship. So ideally we provide a sort of UI toolkit in the same way that Apple does for its desktop and people build software and ship it to that, to, to Urbit as a platform. People don't do that yet, but you know, that's sort of where we're headed. Right. And in that world, you know, what you're describing should be happening at an extremely fast rate. Like people mm -hmm. are constantly, and, and they're able to do it ideally much faster without having to build an entire company because they don't have to actually engineer the entire stack themselves, which is what it requires when you want to launch a new service. You're running the server, you're building this entire software stack. You have to, you know, get yourself into Y Combinator or whatever. <laughs> like you, you have to start a company to do this. And so yeah, my position would be, yeah, we want that to happen even more. And sure, you're going to see this. Uh, I'm not trying to reinvent the economic model there. There may be, there may be, you know, giant software companies that use Urbit as a platform and they buy and sell one another. That, that's, that's fine. Just want it to be easier for people to experiment. I have a question about a little bit of your background, Galen. So I know that, you know, you wait, before we go background, I do want to, there's one little thing I wanted to, I, I think it's kind of awesome. And it kind of comes back to my government intervention on do so the model I just kind of described of new innovation comes up, Facebook swallows them, has allowed these giants to get bigger and bigger and more power and control, which I think the general public understands now to a, to a great degree. And it doesn't seem like there's a way out. And perhaps given government being too cozy with big business, maybe it would be very difficult without kind of a revolution in a sense of, of possibly government intervention to break up the monopoly. So we, we don't call them a, technically a monopoly, but there is a lot of power and the government hasn't, doesn't have a lot of control because there's not a price being charged, right? Facebook's basically free because of the, of the business model with the ad revenue. And so government, I think, is right at a critical point where how can we, if, if we do cherish competition, how can we get the message to the politicians and other people that maybe something should be broke up and maybe Urbit is a thing that helps us plan for additional competition um, rather than as, cause I agree with you, what you were saying about, we're probably slowing down the pro progress by not having things decentralized enough. Yeah. What do you yeah, think I mean, of that, that? So that argument is definitely like in a way, a technical one saying that basic urban as a platform should be much easier to develop and build software for than having to build it completely custom in the way that we do today, which means that people should be able to do it faster. And yeah, the regulation question, is such a funny one to me because I've been working on this since the time when people didn't care that Facebook was basically already too big. And certainly the government didn't seem to care. And so the, the general 
change in sentiment about this and yeah, those are the antitrust lawsuits and so on. I almost feel like I haven't totally processed because our approach has always been, look, like our, our approach to making urban successful is simply make this a nicer thing to use. Like there are reasons that you might want to use it, you know, that, that I feel like we covered at the beginning, but at the end of the day, the idea is to actually just build a better product. We think this can actually be a much nicer system to use and stay connected with people. And that we compete in the same arena that anything would, I guess, if, if, if that makes sense. So I think the government in some ways is doing us a favor in terms of almost like increasing the, re, um, it's like telling the story that we want, like making the story that we want people to believe like more widely understood. Mm -hmm. So I'm happy about that, I, or I'll take it, you know, it's like a free, <laughs> it's a feels like a favor or something. Whether or not, I feel really uncertain, yeah, about whether or not they can be successful or whether or not regulation will actually make that big of an, an impact. But I, I think I've always looked at government as something that it's like almost like too complicated for me to understand. <laughs> so so I don't I don't have to feel like I have a really good way of, of like looking at how this is going to play out and understanding it very well, if, if that makes sense. Like I wouldn't make a bet on, on how this is going to go. Yeah. Um, I yeah. think your, your principles that you're putting forth, though, are generalizable to things that we've had throughout history of allowing more freedom, more individuality, yeah and more control at the individual level. So yeah. I, I think I mean, it's very we've seen similar. It even in the last, like in recent history, right? I think that's why it's like, you go mainframe to PC, you go AOL to open internet, and then you go Facebook to, you know, sort of open social software. That's inevitable. That's sort of, I'm just like, that's gonna happen. I mean, I think we're gonna do it. I mean, someone's gonna do it, it's gonna happen. That, that's just how it goes. Okay. Justin, sorry to interrupt, but I had that thought that was related to that. Since you trained as an architect, and I know that you've talked a lot about uh, Christopher Alexander before, and having heard you talk about Christopher Alexander, I've gone back and tried to read some of Christopher Alexander. And some of yes. it seems a little bit Gnostic in the sense, uh, <laughs> yeah. and I don't mean that in a bad way, yeah. but you know, I think some of the stuff that he's pointing out that you know, architecture needs to take like aesthetics seriously and, and it, it also seems like Urbit is one of the rare tech companies that really takes aesthetics seriously and has a, a noticeable aesthetic. So I was wondering if you could say either a little bit about maybe the way in which, you know, Christopher Alexander's ideas about like what kind of natural growth in systems looks like, or, yeah. and also maybe how that affects Urbit's, you know, intentional aesthetics. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's a big question. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to just think of how to compress it. It's, it's funny because I've been asked weirdly just in the last two days, I've had three or four, like all this weird barrage of people asking me about Christopher Alexander, just out and completely disconnected people. I mean, I talk about Alexander a lot because I think he's incredible, but, uh, and it just has a huge, huge impact on my thinking of it is it's like the season of, uh, Christopher Alexander. Anyway. Um, the, my understanding or the thing that is, I think, so I went to, I come from, or like academically came from a school of, of thinking about architecture that I think of, I think in retrospect as being kind of in a way, very materialistic. It's about like how things, it's just about making stuff in a very, I think it's about like, yeah, it always just to me, like, looks like it's like making more stuff. You try to make more cool stuff in a way. And I think that's what most of the preoccupation of architects is. Alexander is someone who I think thinks of architecture as something that should serve the communities that depend on it. And 
that thinks about it, I almost think from the sort of the inside out. So rather than thinking, how can I make a really beautiful building and being obsessed with how that building is constructed and what it's made out of, think about how is that building going to be used and owned by people over a long period of time? How can we sort of like think about it as architecture as being this like outgrowth of how communities are supposed to function? And certainly, you know, we can all sense the difference between being in, you know, being in Rome and being in, you know, the suburbs of Miami, like whether no, no judgment, you know, one, you know, some people love living in the suburbs that's, that's, and, and perhaps they've made it their own, but they're very different feelings. And the difference in feeling is that one reflects one community and its history and another reflects another community and its history. And so I guess like, I think the tools that we use in sort of engender trust when they feel like they're sort of made with a certain degree of seriousness and attention that is very thorough. And so Urbit, I tend to think that it's really important that we approach Urbit with that same seriousness. Like software tools should be very well thought through by the community that cares for them. And then ideally you give them over to other people who then, you know, create new and different things for themselves. And you, and you kind of have this feedback loop of, of making things. But it's really important that the genesis of that come from, I don't know, sort of that you put in an enormous amount of energy and, and care in, in making the initial thing. So I think that's why, yeah, I tend to, we want the, from, you know, the typography, the code itself, like the whole thing has to, should be sort of like a beautiful object. We often get almost criticized for this, which I think is funny where people are like, this is an art project. I'm like, yeah, it's an art project. That's amazing. <laughs> like that's. Wouldn't it be better if you looked at, like, if Facebook was an art project, maybe it wouldn't be such a shit show. You know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. You want these things to be beautiful. Yeah, I don't know if that's, that covers it. There's a, there are a few deep rabbit holes in, this, in that, like, network of things. So, yeah, I don't know how far you want to go. So I was curious, kind of maybe on a similar note, may, maybe you'll bat back and say, no, this is unrelated. I don't know the architect that you're referred to quite as well as Justin, and I've looked into him as much, but just mentioned the natural change of systems. And so I've been doing a little bit of reading about market urbanism lately. And that's sort of uh, what I take it to be is like a reaction against maybe some past city planning mechanisms where things are sort of planned ahead of time, sort of top down rather than like naturally decided by the community. And I'm curious if you see a parallel at all between like city planners and the the constructors of the current way we connect with each other. So whether that's a social media platform or an OS or something like that, do you see a parallel there, or, is, or do you think that uh, that's maybe a false uh, a false line drawn between those things? No, I think it's totally fair. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like the leap for me from architecture to software. I mean, I, I grew up in like sort of proximal Silicon Valley or enough proximal enough that I uh, was sucked into this whole world. And then I went to architecture school and I felt like, you know, the sort of deep drive behind architecture is to help people organize, you know, help communities organize themselves in a way, right? That's like what cities did. Cities are a form of technology in the same way that the internet and software is. And so building software is, is yes, in a way like an act of urbanism. You know, you see, we're all walking around cities all the time, looking at our phones and our phones are telling us what to do in those cities. Like they shape how our how we live our lives and how our how our communities work. I tend to think of I mean I almost think yeah the equivalency you know the, the service oriented world we live in is like living in you know this just you know panopticon 100% top down planned it's like a, a a 
completely controlled world like we've never seen in the physical world. And it's almost difficult. It's like living inside a mall in Singapore, or like it's a, maybe it's like <laughs> Vegas. Actually, I think the, 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 it, just the you know just the strip, not the not the weird and, and interesting parts. It's like you're just living in that one you know half a mile in Vegas. So yeah, no, I think it's totally the same. And the, the you know the urban world is sort of like the, I mean, ideally is a richly varied you know, shaped by the people who use it, a, a world that is at first probably a world of homesteaders and then eventually a world that ideally actually looks like, I think most cities, even modern cities are actually incredibly varied and unusual. And that's what's so fantastic about them. And we don't see that in the digital world. And it's, yeah, no, it's just incredibly strange. That's that's really, I, I hadn't thought of it like that. It, it That's a really good point. It's not just that the city's planned. It's like you walk inside a building and the building was planned and you walk inside a yeah. room and the furniture is planned. Yeah. And like, you know, if you're lucky, there's a sandbox or two in some of the rooms or something like that. Yeah. I'm remi- <laughs> I, yeah, I'm reminded of that movie from probably 20 years ago, James Carey, where he's brought up in this artificial world. It's like the ultimate reality show. Do you remember the name of that one? The Truman Show. The Truman Show, yes. The Truman oh, Show. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, that, and that might be a good analogy to help, um, you know, Urbit kind of open people's eyes that, you know, you've been living in a Truman Show oh, yeah. orchestrated by Mark Zuckerberg and, and uh, <laughs> the other bigs. And this is what the world, the world is much bigger than what you're thinking. <laughs> I mean, you just but can't But the thing that's, that's so tragic about it is that those people aren't even thinking about it in that way. Like they're no. not even taking it seriously. So it's just like a, there's, right. it's, yeah, it's even worse <laughs> or funnier, depending on how <laughs> humorous. <laughs> well, this looks like a good place to wrap today. I, I do want you to go ahead and let our listeners know where they could go for more information to learn more about Urbit and, and where what, uh, sure, yeah. what contacts you can give them. If you're at all technical and are interested in playing with computers, you can just go to urbit.org and, and check out how to install Urbit and, and, and play with it. Most of the community which is pretty lively, is actually on Urbit itself. So you can figure out how to boot a node and get on there. For non-technical people, we just launched a hosting service as the company. So you can go to tlon.io, and there's a waiting list there where we're slowly onboarding people where you just sort of sign up and we get you started. But those are good jumping off points. You can also, there's lots of information at both those places to kind of explore. So on the Talon site, if I'm understanding any bit of this podcast, you're doing the thing that you're trying to fight against. You're hosting, you're bringing them in and having them in your, in it's your a hosted question. world. Is that true? It's really not? big. It's kind <laughs> of true. Yeah. It's a, there's a really important distinction, which we're pretty clear about, which is that, you know, in a, in a Facebook world, I can't like download my Facebook data and run my own Facebook. And in an Urbit world or, you know, if you use Swan hosting at any point, you can download the whole thing and just ah. run it run it in your closet or even move to a different host. And we don't keep all your data in a single database. So we have no way of, of inspecting uh, you know, what's going on there. And actually we don't even know, you're the only person who holds the key. So it's pretty different. We're just providing you the convenience of, of yeah. something being always on. It's the training wheels yeah. to get you started, right? Yeah. Oh, very good, very good. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thank you, Galen, for spending some time with us today. Happily. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, this has been a production of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University. And we'd like to thank you all for listening. If you'd like to hear more guests and people like Galen, be sure to give us a five-star rating on your apps so we rise through the ranks and people can find our show a little easier. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.